and welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten and I'm joined today for this month's edition by Dr. Thomas Kalinchik from the Department of Neurology at Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Department of Medicine at the University of Melbourne. So thank you very much uh, for joining me today, Thomas. Thank you. Um, so we're going to be talking about your paper that was recently published in the JNMP, uh, looking at immunomodulatory therapies um, in multiple sclerosis. Your paper sort of first starts off with an introduction about um, immunomodulatory therapies in MS um, and that, you know, the sort of impact it may have at later stages of MS. What was the driving factor behind disability in MS at the later stages of the disease? Well, this is a very good question, Elizabeth. It's something that is uh, attracting a lot of attention from basic and clinical scientists. One important sub-question within that realm is how much of that disability that we see particularly in later stages of the disease is driven by inflammation simply because inflammation is something that we have learned to at least partially deal with and mitigate and there is um, a lot of evidence from previous literature that uh, there is uh, the inflammation is not necessarily only restricted to the early relapsing highly inflammatory stages of the disease, but it's also present at the later stages of the disease. It was nicely summarized by Hans Lassmann in his review in Nature Reviews uh, Neurology in 2012. There is a series of works by um, by Joseph Frischer um, where they have indeed demonstrated that this is a publication in Brain in 2009 where they've demonstrated presence of inflammation in progressive disease. And recently, in 2015, in a publication in the Annals of Neurology, they've shown that um, even though lesions in brain in a way mature during the course of the disease where there's less inflammation in secondary progressive disease, there is still some inflammation present and there are some lesions within the brain which can show late signs of inflammation. The question whether inflammation drives the accumulation of disability is a very difficult one. We don't know what was first, whether the inflammation or, or the degeneration. And there are two theories, one suggesting that inflammation is, came first and then dis- uh, accumulation of disability and degeneration is secondary to it. But there is also a, a uh, inside-out theory which suggests that inflammation is merely a response to degeneration. So we require further work to elucidate these mechanisms. So it's not necessarily a sort of linear, um, you know, there's an inflammatory process and then it, it moves into a neurodegenerative process. It seems like the evidence is suggesting that it's, it's just not that as clear-cut as that. Yes, we do not know what is determining what, but we certainly know what is the time sequence of events where the initial stages of the disease tend to be more inflammatory and the later stages of the disease tend to be more progressive. Okay. And then sort of immunomodulatory therapies are often used in the early stages of the disease. Is that right? That is correct. So yeah. that's, what, uh, that's the type of a disease and the stage of the disease for which immunomodulation is typically approved. And this is partially... Uh, determined by the choice of, uh, by the selection of patients for randomized clinical trials based on which these therapies are approved, where typically uh, only people with EDS score less than 6.5, so that means people are able to ambulate without without support, uh, are allowed in uh, a clinical trial. 
So uh, rather than uh, this being determined by biology, it's uh, the, the restriction of the use of immunomodulation is more determined by the design of the original clinical trials. So, I mean, of course, then your paper addressed the gap in the literature in terms of immunomodulatory therapies um, in long-term progression, sort of on long-term disability, particularly in, in the sort of less inflammatory stages of MS. Um, so how did you sort of go about doing that and, and looking at whether the disability trajectory in MS is modifiable by immunomodulatory therapies? Uh, so we are in a privileged situation where we are part of a large international collaborative effort called MS Base, where a number of neurologists and clinical researchers from around the world, from namely from 35 countries, collect data, clinical data, uh, demographic information, on some limited preclinical information such as quantitative, qualitative MRI information and. Uh, several spinal fluid information from the patients on longitudinal ongoing basis. So we have used this large uh, rich collection of information to simply look at trajectories of disability before and after certain milestones. These milestones are typically defined as EDS step 3 or 3.5, EDS step 4 and EDS step 6. And why these are important is because they are particularly EDS step 4 and 6 are quite distinct uh, uh, milestones that can be uh, determined based on patient's ability to walk and EDS-assisted 3 is a milestone that was previously used in other studies that re uh, required accumulation of uh, significant neurological disability in at least one uh, neurological system or one neurological function. The first question that we were asking was whether we can identify determinants of the slope of, the, uh, of this intrapolated disability curves before and after the milestone, if there is anything that governs the slope. And also second question that we were asking was, uh, does the fact that someone progresses quickly from EDS step zero, which is normal, healthy neurological performance to EDS step three, does that determine how quickly these people progress further from EDS step three to EDS step six? And to our great surprise, we didn't find any association between the accumulation of disability before and after these milestones, which is what we went to call um, an amnesic process. So in other words, that the pace at which people accumulate disability early doesn't necessarily determine how quickly they accumulate disability later in their disease, which is very much in keeping with uh, the previous literature, such as uh, Emmanuel Ray's paper in brain in 2010. The important question that, that we then went to ask was what determines, if it is not the previous cause of disability accumulation, what does indeed determine that speed at which people accumulate disability in the later stages of their disease? So we have only looked at the slope of the curves after they've reached the milestones and we've asked the question what the potential factors could be, including age, sex, disease duration, uh, relapse rates uh, treatment. And what we've seen very interestingly was that one important determinant was the frequency of relapses after people have reached the milestone, not before but after. So that means that if people are still relapsing after reaching EDSS 3, 4 or 6, they're more likely to accumulate disability faster than those who are not relapsing at that stage. 
and uh, the second very important determinant, and that's the main outcome of this paper, is that the the a very important uh, determinant of that slope after disability milestone is the proportion of time after that milestone that people spend on what we call high efficacy therapy. By high efficacy therapy here we mean natalizumab, fingolimod, alemtuzumab, and dimethylfumarate. So in other words, the greater proportion of the time after the milestone, the milestone ADS is three, four, six, the greater proportion of time people are treated, the slower they progress to more severe disability. So that means that sort of continuing, if I've understood that correctly, of course, that that means sort of continuing the therapy beyond long term can actually have an effect? Yes. The the fact that patient progresses to certain EDSS tip in itself is not um, an impetus to stop therapy. If they're still having inflammatory disease, if they are at risk of a relapse or if the MRIs show inflammation, then it is worth to continue highly effective therapies as this is likely to prevent further accumulation of disability. Also, it, it has a, a different important angle. In combination with the amnesic character of these curves, it means that for those of the patients who for some reason were not exposed to highly effective therapies before they reached the milestones, um, it means that they are not doomed. It doesn't mean that now everyone will progress at the same rate, but we are still able to modify the rate of the progression even after they've reached the milestone, which is very much in contrary to the previous study of uh, amenal array that I've already mentioned, where the author suggested that once people reach EDS step, step 3, they will all progress at the same rate, regardless of whether they are treated or they are untreated. So I think this is an important myth that we hope to bust. Thinking it from a sort of wider angle, your paper sort of concludes by highlighting the debate concerning, of course, the discontinuation of disease-modifying therapies in patients with MS at a certain stage, presumably after a certain milestone, as, as you just described. So I suppose, I mean, how um, thinking about myth-busting and, and how these findings should be interpreted, how do you propose both patients and clinicians sort of apply your findings from this paper to these debates? So what we, what we propose is that people who are treated with highly effective therapy at uh, the stage at the time when they reach these milestones, they continue taking their highly effective therapy. So the the fact that they reach the milestone doesn't in itself mean that they should stop. And we know about some jurisdictions where the the access to therapies can be uh, conditional on people having disability not exceeding a certain EDSS step. And that until recently was, for example, New Zealand where people had to stop therapy when reaching EDSS step four. Now, this has changed, so that's not not true anymore. But I'm sure there are other jurisdictions where clinicians and patients would face very similar problems. So we're hoping that what we help to put together is an important piece of evidence to to convince the payer to pay for treatment uh, in people with more advanced disease, as this may prevent significant further accumulation of disability and hence further disease-associated costs. In terms of um, future findings or sort of future research that could add to this debate, is there anything in particular that yourself and, and the sort of countries involved in this project have in mind, or is, it, um, is there certain evidence that still needs to be accumulated? 
Yes, we're very interested in finding out if uh, immuno immunotherapies that we use for Phillips-Syndromatic disease are also suitable for treatment of secondary progressive disease. Going back to the, the basic science that I cited earlier uh, of Hans Lassmann and, uh, and uh, Joseph Frischer, that uh, showing that there is certain amount of inflammation even in more advanced disease, even in secondary progressive disease, in fact, it is reasonable to assume that by mitigating this uh, inflammation, we may be able to achieve some degree of improvement or slowing down of the progression even in secondary progressive disease. Uh, once again, MS-based would be an ideal setting for this type of research where we could identify patients diagnosed with secondary progressive disease, and some of them would have been exposed to, to uh, immunomodulatory therapies from different jur jurisdictions as the rules of access to therapies vary from country to country. So it would be very interesting to us uh, for, for us to compare treatment outcomes in patients with secondary progressive disease and uh, the, in order to identify those people who we would include this, in this research, we will use our own definition of secondary progressive disease, which we have recently developed in the MS base and published in uh, BRAIN. So that was Dr. Thomas Kalinchik from the uh, Department of Neurology at Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Department of Medicine, University of Melbourne. Um, and we were talking about his recent paper that's been published in the JNMP uh, this month. And please uh, check it out on jnmp.bmj.com. And thank you very much for joining us today. <laughs>